0: Uh, Well, today we are concluding the teaching series that we've been in for the last month and a half, really now, titled Signs, where we have been looking at the seven different miracles or the seven different signs that the Apostle John records in the Gospel of John. And it has been such a fantastic series, hasn't it? Have you guys loved this series as much as I have? Yeah, it's been a great series. And um, it's been a lot of fun for I know me and our team and the teachers here to dig into this content together as we kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter next weekend. But today, as we bring the series to a close, we have the privilege of hearing from a good friend of Heartland's in Pastor Greg Giamalva. Greg is the founding and senior pastor of a church in Rockford, Illinois, called Stateline Church. Uh, I have known Greg now. I was thinking about this a little bit this morning, and I was like, man, it's coming up on 20 years and that makes me feel so much older than I used to feel. Um, but I've known Greg for almost 20 years. We got into ministry uh, within about a year of each other and have just gotten to cheer each other on in the paths that God has led us down. And God's doing amazing things through Greg and the ministry at Stateline. And uh, so I'm so excited to have Greg joining us today to bring this series to a close. And so will you help me give a warm heartland welcome to Pastor Greg Giamalva.
1: Thanks, man. (laughs) Well, hello, everybody. How's everybody doing out there? Good, good. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. I love this church. I love your pastors. Even John, yes, I love him, even though I've known him for 20 years. Is that really true? That's a long time, and I've known Ashley for that same period of time as well. You guys do have amazing pastors. This is an amazing facility, by the way. I have not, this is my first time in the new building. What a privilege to have this facility. But this is cracking me up. You have this like beautiful facility and then John still uses this rickety old thing as his podium. It's like, hey, let's spend millions of dollars on a building. Oh, we got to save money on the budget. I know where to save 10 bucks. It's like, okay, so here we go. So forgive me if this thing just wobbles all over the place. (laughs) Whatever, we're going to dive right in. We as people, we are not very patient people, are we not? And some of you are probably sitting next to someone who's not a very patient person. Do not elbow that person. You'll be in trouble later. We just don't like to wait. We don't like to wait on things. Did you know the average wait in the ER, which is like Dante's Inferno. It's the seventh layer of hell. I think you guys knew that, right? The ER, the average wait is four hours and seven minutes. Isn't that ridiculous? That's crazy. We don't like to wait at restaurants. So if you have a waiting time at the restaurant, what do you do? Normally, you'll be like, ooh, Well, let's just get in the car and drive as long as we would have waited, but at least you're doing something. But I would say the worst thing in the world is to wait in a line. I hate waiting in lines at grocery stores. I hate waiting in lines at the theme park, especially at the theme park because you've paid a lot of money and good money to go to the theme park just to spend about half of your time standing in lines. Now, I was able like a year or two ago to go with a friend, to Universal Studios, and he had the MVP package at Universal Studios. And with the MVP package, you literally skip every line. So people are waiting in like the Harry Potter line, and they're standing around for like an hour, hour and a half for these rides, and you just walk right by them. And you can see why power corrupts, by the way, because you just peacock right (laughs) past these people. You're just like, oh, this feels so good. And it just begs the question that when you see these people waiting in line, how long should you wait when it's worth it. Right? There is this kind of period of time where you've got to evaluate if the line's like 30 minutes, is it worth it versus an hour. And interestingly, Timex, they did a study, and they did a study that shows how long we as people are willing to wait on certain things before we'll do something. And so let me ask you a few questions. These are rhetorical. You don't have to respond. If someone's sitting in front of you in a green light, right, how long do you wait before you honk the horn? Timex says somebody waits 13 seconds. I was like, no way. People are like immediate like, burn. My wife, as soon as the light turns green, she goes, green. I'm like, okay, babe, I get it. I, I have eyes that God gave me. I can see it. But just, just no patience whatsoever. All right, how about this? Someone is talking in a movie theater. How long do you wait before you say something to them? Timex says 26 seconds is the average, 26 seconds. All right, you're waiting for a blind date to arrive. How long do you wait until you bail? Well, Timex said 20 minutes. I'm like, 20 minutes? If they show up at like 15 minutes, isn't that a good indication of what you're about to get yourself into if you keep dating this person? Right? You should bail after like five minutes unless they call. But there is this whole other type of waiting. And this is the waiting that happens when life throws you a curveball. This is the waiting that happens when you find yourself in crisis. It might be from relational trauma. It might be from a family issue or crisis. This type of waiting might happen when you don't know when or how you're going to pay your bills. This is the type of waiting we've been in for over a year now as a virus has literally shut down our world, and we're like, how much longer do we have to wear the muzzle, right? How much longer do we have to go until we can go back to normal, and we find ourselves stuck waiting things outside of the realm of our control. There's literally nothing we can do about it. And what makes this type of waiting difficult is not only do we not know when these crises will end, but many a times we don't know what the outcome will be when they do end. And it's in these moments in life that we find ourselves in the waiting room. And we as people are not patient people, right? We as people don't like finding ourselves in the waiting room. I have two kids, uh, Jack and Luke, and my youngest son, Luke, he was born about nine weeks early, a little premature. And my wife, Andrea, had to have an emergency C section. And because of, and I'm not a medical expert here or a doctor, but because of the way her placenta was attached to her uterus, after this emergency C section, she simply wouldn't stop bleeding. So they waited for it to stop. It didn't stop. So she had a surgery. So then we waited. Waited for it to stop. It didn't stop. So another procedure. And then we waited. And we're waiting for it to stop. And 13 bags of blood later, they put a central line into her because they could not pour blood into her fast enough. 13 bags of blood and many hours later she's rushed into another emergency surgery and this one they're serious and I get news from the doctor there's a very real chance that my wife might die and so here I am with a one and a half year old at home and a premature baby in the NICU and my wife is rushed off into an emergency surgery and I'm told at about 1:30 in the morning just to wait in the waiting room praying Hoping, begging, pleading with God to move. Has anyone ever found themselves in the waiting room? Maybe you find yourself in one right now, and it's one of the most taxing places you can be, right? It it pushes and tests every part of who you are. It's physically exhausting. It's mentally demanding, emotionally draining, and it just pushes your faith to the limits. And so what do you do? What do you do? Because if you're not in a waiting room now, Chances are you've been in one, or at some point you will find yourself in one. And so what do you do when you find yourself in the waiting room? Well, I want to look at a story in the Bible, and it's a story of waiting. And I want to see what happens as these people are in the waiting room of faith. And not only will we see in this story something of what Jesus does, but because of the series that we're in, we're going to see a sign of who he is. Not just what he does but who he is. And if you're tracking along, we're going to be in John 11, and we're going to be basically almost reading through the entire chapter of John 11. So if you have your Bible app or something like that, you can follow along. Don't worry, we have the Sky Bible up here for you so you can track along on the screen. John 11 verse 1. Here we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, and Bethany is just a little village right right outside Jerusalem. It's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Let me pause here for a second. A little background on this story. Over the course of Jesus' ministry and travels, he would bounce around the Judean area quite a bit, but he found himself coming back to this place quite often, because he developed some very close relationships with these three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. These three siblings were like his besties, okay? This was a safe place for him. This was like a refuge place. This was a place he could go and just be himself, relax, hang out. And we see now though that something bad has now happened to Lazarus. We don't know what exactly has happened other than that he's sick. But good news, right? This family's in luck. They know a guy, I got a guy. They happen to know somebody who can do something about the sicknesses. So let's go. Verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, so they sent a messenger to Jesus. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Okay, this is a puzzling development, right? Jesus hears the news that his bestie, his homeboy, his friend, Lazarus, he hears the news that he's sick, and instead of rushing off to help him, the Bible literally says he waits. This is weird. This is odd. If your friend called you, your best friend, and he said, I need you. This is an emergency. You got to get to my house. What would you do? If you wouldn't leave right away, you're a bad friend, right? You'd be, I'll, I'll be right there, right? You'd figure it out and you'd move. If I was sick and I called, you better come now. <laughs> I, I need you. But it's interesting as you look at this story, you see that just because they waited, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't ignore them. He sent back a message. And if you look at the message that he sent, it was a very simple message. It was essentially two words. Trust me. Trust me. Do you trust me? Trust me. This will not end the way you think it's going to end. Just trust me. And then that little passage that we read, it it happens to say something I think is important And it's important that it's inserted right here in the narrative because it shows that having to wait does not mean that Jesus or God does not love you because the narrative says that he loved them very much. Like, he loved them. But there was a plan, and there was a plan in place. And so what it meant was that they had to trust him, that trust that he had a plan, trust that he loved them very much. Let's jump into the story a little bit. We're going to look at verse 17 and then jump a few more verses to verse 21. On his arrival, so now Jesus decides to go. He had waited. He moves. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know but even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And so Jesus goes to Bethany. And at this point when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And I heard judah smith kind of dissect this exchange right here between martha and jesus because you see this crazy shift of emotion right here something that i hadn't previously noticed you see martha says to jesus if you were here my brother may have lived he would have lived if you were here and notice mary didn't even show up she's probably just mad at jesus right? Mary's not here. Martha's here. And and so Mary's just gone. She's grieving. She's mourning. Maybe she's a little tick. And so Martha says to Jesus, if you were here, my brother would have lived. And then you see this shift in emotion. She says, but maybe now, maybe now God can do through you can do something. Like even now, maybe God can give you whatever you ask. So you see despair and this shift to a glimmer of hope. And as she has this glimmer of hope, Jesus literally says to her, yeah, okay your brother will rise again. He literally reiterates his promise to her, but Martha takes this like, okay, yeah, you're right, Jesus. I know one day, maybe the last day, in heaven, he will rise again. And you see her almost shift. You see the tone in her voice change. She goes back to despair. And so Jesus is watching this play out right in front of him and Look at what he says to her, verse 25. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the most famous declarations of who Jesus is in the entire scripture, right? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he presents it back to Martha. Martha! Martha! Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that I am the life? And she says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And so Jesus asks this question. He declares, I'm the resurrection and life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe. But I want you to notice what she's saying yes to. What is she saying that she believes? Well, she's saying, if you look at the context of it, what she believes in is that when people die, they will all rise again in the last days. Because he's the Messiah, because he's the Savior, she's saying that in the end, everybody will be resurrected with him. But what she's not saying that she believes in is that he's going to do something right now. She's sad. She's heartbroken. She's been waiting for far too long, and her brother's dead. And so she's like, yes, Jesus, I get it. Someday, another day, we will all rise again. In heaven, we'll all be together, but that's later. In heaven, where there's pudgy baby angels and harps, and we're all sitting on clouds, and that'll be great. And and that's something to look forward to. But right now, Jesus, right now, all I see is death. Right now my heart's broken. Right now, we're grieving. Right now, it's too late. And I think many times in the same way, when we hear that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, maybe you've been to a funeral where somebody will read that verse and we think, that's great. That's about heaven. Or we'll say, that's great. That's an Easter story. That's for next week right? Resurrection and life, that's about Easter. That's a story about how Jesus rose from the dead so that we, get, that we get heaven, so that we get eternal life. And in celebration of Easter, what do we do? Next week, what are you all going to do? You're going to dress up. You're going to put your pastels on, right? You're going to go like, hopefully you don't like see the creepy bunny because that's terrifying, but you're going to hunt for some eggs and you're going to come to church because that's what we do on Easter. But if we're honest, when we're in the middle of the wait, Life is chaos. Trouble surrounds us. We're facing maybe no job, sickness, addictions. Our relationships are full of conflict. We're just discouraged. We're wrestling with our mental health. We're full of fears. We're full of worries, and we're just tired of the weight. It sure doesn't feel like anything will rise again. It sure doesn't feel like anything's alive. And so what happens is we celebrate Easter on Sunday and be like, thank God for heaven. Thank God for the promise of resurrection that one day we will live in eternity with Jesus, but then we go back to the real world on Monday. Back to the real world where the same problems exist, where we're still waiting, and you got to put up with Carl from accounting. Frickin' Carl, right? Same old problems. No resurrection. No life. Sorry if your name's Carl, by the way. And no hope. And so Martha, she sends for her sister Mary... And we see now in the narrative that the funeral is now happening, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Basically echoes the same sentiment that Martha had. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, so the funeral is now happening, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And it's interesting that the first words out of Mary's mouth are the exact same as their sisters. And what you see from these two sisters, once again, who knew Jesus very well, who were besties with Jesus, but they both felt like it was too late. They had waited too long, that Jesus had waited too long, and it was now too late for even Jesus to make a difference. If you had been here, you weren't. But if you had, maybe then you could have done something. But now... It's too late. And this is when the narrative takes a turn. To me, it gets really fascinating because there's a lot of dynamics in play in this power-packed chapter of the Bible. And you see Jesus now seeing her weeping. He sees the funeral progression. And the Bible says right here at the end of verse 33 that he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, this is interesting to me because if you were to look up this phrase in the original Greek, this can actually be translated to him having a deep anger. And so now a deep anger is welling up inside of Jesus. And it just kind of begs the question, what would make the God of the universe all of a sudden get angry to have this deep anger well up inside of him? Now, he could be angry at how he sees death impacting people. It's very possible. But as I read this narrative, I can't help but wonder, if he feels troubled and slightly angry that no one believes him he literally keeps saying guys I'm trying to tell you this will not end in death I am the resurrection and the life I am the answer to the question I am the solution to the problem do you not believe do you not believe I'm the resurrection and the life this won't end in death I sent you a message did you not get the message I sent you an email did you not get the email guys This won't end in death. And they keep being like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, Jesus, sure. One one day, I get it, the last days. Yeah, if you had been here, you weren't here. And so all they can see are their circumstances, right? And their circumstances sure look like death. And they sure felt like death. What you actually see are people trusting more in their circumstances than the God who's standing right in front of them. And they missed the very thing that had promised he could make a difference. And we do this all the time. We, 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 when we don't get maybe what we want or things don't work out the way we want or we find ourselves in the waiting room or life is in crisis, we say this type of phrase, well, if you had come sooner, Lord, if you would have shown up when I called for you, right, if you would have came when I prayed, then this tragedy wouldn't have happened. This pain would have I would have gotten into that college. Would have gotten that job. But you didn't answer my prayer. And we just assume in that moment, because we didn't get what we want, when we want, that all of a sudden God's done working. That he's, he's in Fiji somewhere and angels are serving him Mai Tais. Right? He's just ignored us now. He gone. He's just off on vacation, doing his own thing. He doesn't care about, he doesn't see us, doesn't pay attention, and we forget maybe one of the core, guys, listen, this is like the core promise of the Scripture, is that he never leaves you, he never forsakes you, that he's still present. Verse 34, Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. This, to me, like I said, very fascinating passage of Scripture that shows us so much about the dynamic of who Jesus is. So Jesus asked to go to the tomb. This would be just a cave, right? Something dug out of the side of the wall. And then verse 35, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. And so if your goal or mission is to memorize more Scripture this year, there you go. You're, You're well on your way. Jesus wept. But for a very short verse, man, it is packed with a lot of depth heart and significance. And this is interesting to me because Jesus is going, like, just kind of on this wild ride of, of this crazy evolution of emotion here. He goes from a troubled spirit to feeling angry to weeping. And, and this is weeping, guys. This is an ugly cry. <laughs> you, you've seen this type of cry, right? When you get embarrassed when somebody's crying like this when well, you're like, please don't do that. Okay. okay. Right? And they, they take the tissue. They're not just, like, dabbing the corners of their eyes. To hold it together. No, he's wailing right now. Can you imagine watching Jesus wail? This is not your Sunday school Jesus. This is not the Jesus you learn about when you're, when you're growing up, right? This is a Jesus full of emotion. This is a Jesus who gets very angry and then weeps in front of a cave, who, who's weeping in front of a tomb, the very tomb, the very grave that he knows he can empty. And so why? Why does he weep? Well, I do think that sometimes when we feel like maybe Jesus is checked out or he's not around or whatever, we think that if he were here, he would tell us to just suck it up, right? So what if you lost a job? So what if you lost your relationship? Lots of people have done that. Oh, okay, something bad happened. Join the club, right? that happens to everybody. It's time to move on. Or why don't you quit having pain and have more faith, right? Have more faith, and you can just get through this. But, but think about Jesus now in this moment. He's literally, literally walking, breathing life. He's the solution to the problem. But when he gets to the grave, he doesn't say, hey, everyone, stop crying. He doesn't say, hey, everyone, I told you I was going to fix this. Come on. He literally stops and he weeps. Because Jesus knows that in moments of pain, the end result of heaven does not change or eradicate the present pain that we're in. The end result or the end promise of resurrection does not change the fact that we feel death now. And what this shows us is that the God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth spoke, life happens, right? The God who created everything understands our pain. The Bible calls him a man of sorrows. He suffered in every way. He understands temptation. He understands struggle. He can identify. And to me, this is one of the most amazing things about Jesus. He knows he is life, but yet he cries when he sees death. He knows he's the solution, but he is in pain when he sees the problem. I mean, God knew. Jesus knew that because of Adam and sin, it would wreak havoc on this world, right? And we see it. We see it all around us. We see tornadoes and destruction and pain and, and viruses and cancer. We see all of the destruction because of sin, because of man's choice entering into this world, and yet Jesus feels it too. And instead of ignoring the mess or saying, your fault, you broke it, you deal with it, what did he do? Well, he put a skin suit on and said, I'll get in the mess with you. I'll come down and be in the mess with you. And not only does what this tells us is not only does Jesus not ignore our pain, but he has to be taken to the source of it. Take me to your tombs. Take me to your caves. Take me to your dead places. Take me to your past. Take me to your mistakes. Take me to your regret. Take me to your place of failure. I want to go there with you. No, 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 Jesus, you don't want to go there. Yeah, I want to go there. And when he gets to your pain, when he gets to your regrets, when he gets to your sorrows, he doesn't say, oh, you should have done better. You should have had more faith. No, no, no. He goes, let me just stop and sit here for a while and let me cry with you. I'm sorry this happened. He feels it, which means you can invite him into not just the pretty parts of your life, right? Right? but every part. Verse 38. Jesus now, standing in front of the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, (laughs) for he has been there for four days. So now he's wiping tears from his eyes, right? We don't know what the waves of emotion are with Jesus. He walks up to the rock. He's like, hey, come on. All right, it's time. Somebody take that stone away. And things that are about to get crazy up in here, take that rock away. And I love Martha. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, she's a type one, okay? She's like the perfectionist. She's like, whoa, 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 whoa Jesus! The story of Martha and Mary earlier in the Bible, she's the one who's like preparing and working in the kitchen, cooking up the food, while Mary's just like the hippie at Jesus' feet. I love you, Jesus, right? Martha's like, oh, my sister's such a moron. Like, there's work to do in this house. So she's the type one. And so I love, Jesus is about to do something amazing here. And what's Martha doing? She's thinking about smells, right? Oh, gee, I didn't bring a candle for this. He'd he been in there for four days. Jesus, don't make a scene. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward. Let's just leave the rock. The family's here. Okay. Verse 40. Jesus said, did I not tell you? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the, Lord, the glory of God? Martha, how many times we got to keep hitting repeat on the same message here, right? I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you not believe this will not end in death? In, In a way, what he's kind of saying is, Martha, if you have faith that I can resurrect your brother in heaven, then why don't you have faith I can do something now? It's the same type of faith, right? If you have faith that in the last days, in the end days, I can do something, why don't you believe I can do something now? And this is so like us. When Jesus tells us there'll be heaven, right? And in the end days, everything will be okay. We're like, yes, I believe that. Mm. In heaven. Everything will be okay in heaven. But when Jesus wants to walk into your everyday circumstances and deal with the most painful parts of your life now, right? When he wants to address the most painful part of your story. When he wants to uncover the most painful part of who you are. Right? Whoa, 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 Jesus. Don't do that. The smells. You're not going to like what you find. Let's just leave that where it's at. Let's not mess with that. And this is an interesting part of humanity. We are so quick and able to let Jesus in for salvation because we get the promise of heaven, but we will not let Jesus come in and deal with our broken hearts. We're like, Jesus, take me to heaven when I die, but don't do anything with my soul right now. Like, take me to heaven. I want to spend eternity with you, but I'm just going to live in some misery In pain and regret, don't take the stone away today. I've gotten comfortable with my pain. I've gotten comfortable with my sin, my regrets, my addictions. So let's just keep those buried. Safer, leave them covered. Let's just not go there. It's painful, embarrassing, and it stinks. And usually those parts that you don't want to reveal to the Lord, which, by the way, come on. He already knows, right? He knows what's on the other side of the rock. It's like, ooh, you're not hiding from me, Lord. Okay, he knows. Those parts, though, that's the part he's like, no, 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 take me there. And he wants to put his hand and his finger on that spot. And why? When a doctor applies pressure to a wound, does it hurt for a moment? Yeah, it does. But they don't do it to hurt you more. They do it to bring healing. And Jesus is saying, if you just let me put my hand there, let me touch that, that sore spot, that spot you don't want me to come, but just let me come there. I can bring healing. And I hope you realize that rolling stones away and healing broken hearts is what Jesus does. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you have always heard me, always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Jesus says a prayer not for Lazarus, not for his sake, but for everybody standing there, right? He's praying for their doubts, and he looks into this dead space, and he calls forth life. He says, Lazarus, come out. And I have to believe that Jesus having so much authority over death, he being the source of life, if he did not say Lazarus, is it possible now that every dead person in a cave would have started crawling out of the ground? That's how powerful and how much authority that Jesus has in this moment over death. He calls him out, and dude, put yourself in this moment. We read these stories, and we forget that this actually happened. These are real people standing there. And so they're watching this, and they had a funeral progression happening, right? They've got tons of doubts. They think think it's too late, and a mummy comes out of the tomb. He's alive. Did they dance? Did they scream? Did they celebrate? And Jesus is just so cool. He just goes, somebody probably should unwrap them. <laughs> Mic drop, right? Somebody should probably, you know, get those linens off of them. I just love it so much. And what I love about this story is it shows us not just what Jesus does. We talk a lot about what Jesus does, the things he can do, right? Right? But this actually shows us who he is. He didn't just say, I can resurrect. He didn't just say, I will resurrect. He said, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And so by saying this, what is he saying? He's saying resurrection is not an event. Resurrection is not Easter Sunday. Right? It's not something we celebrate. It's not something that happens. Resurrection is a person, and his name is Jesus. Resurrection is a person. He is, by his very essence, life. It is who he is, which means he's the resurrection and life, yes, for tomorrow. He is your hope for eternity. He is your hope for heaven. But that means that he just all of a sudden stopped being who he was No, no, no. That means he's still the resurrection and life, which means he's your hope for resurrection today. He's your hope for life today because he didn't just stop being who he is. He's always been resurrection and life, which means he wants to walk into your dead places. He wants to walk towards the tombs of your life now, not waiting for heaven. And he wants to call into the darkness come on out and bring freedom. And hope, because once again, it's who he is. And so let me ask this question. Have you been waiting now so long that you stopped believing in a Jesus who can actually take the stones away? Have you been waiting so long that your only hope now is heaven, eternity, some ethereal place that you hope it works out the way you hope it works out, but you've lost sight of any hope for today? That Jesus is no longer present. He's just gone. He's somewhere else. He doesn't see me. He doesn't care. And the truth is that He knows you. He made you. He loves you. But yet we're so quick to conclude that life just is what it is. I'm always gonna feel this way. I'm always gonna have this struggle. I'm always gonna have this addiction. But at least one day I'll go to heaven. But is it really too late for you? Is it too late for your career? Is it too late for your marriage? Is it too late for your family? Is it too late for that addiction? Is it? And what's your alternative? To not believe? To just keep going the same way that you're going right now and have no hope? Let's just be logical here for a second. Why not try Jesus? Why not try someone whose very name is life? His very name is resurrection. What do you have to lose to uncover these parts of your, your life or story to him and let him in? If you're going to have pain anyways, if you're going to suffer anyways, then you might as well do it having Jesus in your story providing hope. Then no hope at all. Now, does this mean that he's a genie in the bottle somewhere? That because he's named himself resurrection and he's named himself life, that he will give you whatever you want, however you want it? Well, no. Clearly, we, we just learned from this story that sometimes he doesn't operate the way we expect. But just because he doesn't operate the way we want or the way we expect, it doesn't mean he stopped working. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. And it surely doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And if anything, what this story will show us is that in your life, if you stay faithful and true to Jesus, one, God will get glory through your story. God will get glory through your story. In that bare minimum, you get Jesus. You get to experience Jesus, which means you get to experience at its core life. Because when you have Jesus, that's what you get with him because that's just who he is, which means you can have life now. Abundant life, a full life, life with hope. So as I found myself at 1.30 in the morning in that waiting room, waiting, I can honestly say, and this is not just pastor speak, I can honestly say, because at this point now it ain't about being a pastor. It's not about having a good sermon illustration. It's about me and the Lord. And I can honestly say I've never encountered Jesus' peace and presence and life more. I know he was with me every second in that waiting room. Now, fast forward the story. My wife, Andrea, she's doing great. She's fine. She's alive and well, but she has some scars from that moment, from those surgeries. And those scars are just reminders to us that Jesus was with us every step of the way. But I've thought about this, because some of you might be thinking, well, would you feel that way if she would have died? It's a fair question, right? We like the happy stories in churches, but sometimes all the stories don't have happy endings. But here's what I've realized, is if she would have passed, she would have had Jesus, which means she would have had resurrection in life. And I still have Jesus here, which means I still have resurrection in life. Because resurrection is not about what he does. It's who he is. And when you have him, that's what you get with him. There's this old gospel song, and it goes like this. You can't hurry God. You just have to wait. Trust and give him time no matter how long it takes. He's a God you can't hurry. You don't have to worry. He may not come when you want him, but he's right on time, right on time. So the truth is the length of your wait is not as important as what you do when you wait. And if you look at the original message that was sent via the messenger to Mary and Martha, what was it? Two words. Trust me. I see you. I know you. I'm with you. I feel what you're going through. I do. And I'm going to sit here in the mess with you, but don't ever count me out. You don't know when I'm going to work or how I'm going to move. I always redeem the pain. I always bring hope into the waiting because that's who I am. I am the resurrection of the life. And you say, well, Greg, how do you know this is true for my story? Because you're here with breath in your lungs. And if you have breath in your lungs, that means God's not done with you and God's not done with your story. And so here's what I want to do as we close this service here. We're going to sing a song. Very familiar song. I think you guys have sung this probably dozens of times. It's a beautiful song about the love of God. And just put your focus back on him. Rebuild your trust in him. If you find yourself in a waiting season, right, put your hope in the God who named himself life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son Jesus. And it's not just an Easter story. We love Easter. We love the resurrection. We love the promise of eternal life and and the fact that we will spend eternity with you. But we also know that you came to give us life now. And I pray you help build our faith and, and help expand our vision to trust you in these moments as we sing this song. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.